So we are starting a new quarter. This is the fall quarter, and we're starting a new book, the Gospel of Mark. Today we will be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 34. And so, Lord, as we look at uh, your invasion into our world, we pray that we would understand that the Messiah was manifested in the Gospels, and he was able to be seen and heard and touched. And so we pray that you would help us understand uh, this Gospel and, and how it affects our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. So just a few things about the book itself. The author is John Mark, who we learn about in Acts. Acts 13, he went with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. He was either a cousin or a nephew of Barnabas. He may have been a nephew of Barnabas. He abandoned Paul and Barnabas on that missionary journey, and Paul got mad at him and wouldn't take him again later. So he went alone with Barnabas, and that's when Paul and Barnabas split. Uh, later in his life, he was reconciled again to Paul and he was serving Paul in Rome when Paul was imprisoned. So that is the author of this book. John Mark was an associate of Peter. So as far as the canonicity of Scripture, all of Scripture in the New Testament has to be associated with the apostles to be accepted in the canon or written by one of the apostles' close associates. And uh, Peter was the apostle associated with Mark. So the date of the writing was somewhere before A.D. 64, maybe A.D. 58. There is no dating in the book, so this is just taken by external evidence. The purpose of Mark's gospel is to present Jesus as the servant of the Lord. He is the servant of the Lord, and that's why in the three other Gospels, there's a genealogy. In the Gospel of John, which we did two years ago, the, it's a divine genealogy. You know, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. In the Gospel of Matthew, it's the genealogy of the King of Israel. And in the Gospel of Luke, it's the genealogy of the Son of Man. So it's from Adam. But here in Mark's gospel, Jesus is a servant, and the servants don't have a genealogy. And so there's no genealogy here. And you know it Mark 10.45 kind of sums it up. He says that the this is Jesus speaking, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Okay, and Mark's style is no nonsense, man. No nonsense. Yeah. His focus is on action. He describes very little of Jesus' teachings. You know, in uh, John, there are seven discourses. In uh, Matthew, there's we have the Olivet Discourse. We have several discourses in Matthew and Luke and lots of parables. In Luke and Mark, there's very little teaching. It is mainly action. The other thing to note is that the Gospels are in the dispensation of law. Okay, they're not church truth. They're the end of the 
dispensation of law. The church doesn't come into play until Acts 2, after the Gospels. So when Jesus is speaking like the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about the Mosaic Law there. He's not talking about what governs us. But he doesn't. the Sermon on the Mount is not in the Gospel of Mark, so we don't have to worry about that at this time. <laughs> so... So, section A, John prepares the way. That's verses 1 through 8. Anybody up to reading verses 1 through 8? Okay, thank you. Yeah, so verse 1 starts out, uh, and Mark, which is very characteristic of him, does not beat around the bush at all. He said, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So right off the bat, he lets you know, this is the Son of God we're talking about here. And that is very characteristic of Mark. And the gospel now, the gospel is the Greek word euangelion, and it means good news. So this is the gospel, good news, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is good news. And we'll note that what he was preaching originally when he got there, Mark 1.15 saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel he was preaching was not the gospel that we as the church preach. It is not the same gospel. The gospel he was preaching is that the king has arrived. That means if you enthrone the king, the kingdom will begin. And that is good news, because that is utopia. That's what he was preaching when he came to Israel. So the gospel during the gospels will shift from the gospel of the kingdom to the gospel of personal salvation, which is what the church preaches. We preach the gospel of individual personal salvation. So then he says, in verse 2, as is written in, in Isaiah the prophet, and then he uh, makes an amalgam of three different passages. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So that is a combination of Exodus 20, verse 23, Malachi 3, 1, and Isaiah 4, 40, verse 3. Those three Old Testament uh, prophets, Moses, Malachi, and Isaiah. And um, he attributes it all to Isaiah, as is written in Isaiah the prophet. And basically, it was preparation for the, for the Lord. So, the question is, how do you prepare for a coming dignitary? You clean your house and get some goodies made. Yes, get some goodies. Yeah. So you want to have a good, you know, a presentation for a dignitary. And uh, and I have, you know, in this, ca in this case, the... Uh, the coming dignitary was the Messiah of Israel, who was uh, the God of man. And this is how Moses 
Well, this is what the people said concerning back in Exodus. This is Exodus 24, 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. That's how you prepare for a coming, coming dignity who is the Messiah. Remember, in, it's in the Gospel of Luke somewhere, I don't know exactly where, Jesus says, you call me Lord, Lord, why don't you do what I say? <laughs> you know, he could hear the frustration in his voice. So in verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So what does repentance mean? Okay, yeah. Because that's not your natural tendency, right? Yeah, the repentance translates the Greek word metanoia. Meta is change. Noia is notion or thought. So change your thought. Change your mind is what repentance means. It's, it's not an action. It's a thought. Actions spring out of our thinking. So when you repent and believe the gospel, what you're doing is you're changing your thinking from what it was before to what it is now that you have this information. You have this new information. And that's how we're saved from sin, because we hear the gospel of personal salvation as a church-age believer, that if we believe in Jesus... We can be saved from our sins. We can be delivered from hell. We can go to heaven. And when we change our mind about that and agree with that, then we're saved. That's all there is to it. So what he was talking about here, he says, he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So they were under the Mosaic Law, and so their repentance was to believe in God. That is how they were saved in the Old Testament. They believed in God. And as a corollary to belief in God, they would believe what he said. And, to, and he gave them commands of what to do, and they were to believe that, that they should do that. So basically, it was a call to adherence to the Mosaic Law. And they were confessing their sins. And so, what happens when you confess your sins? Yeah, that's a good thing. And why is that? That's, this is Proverbs 28. It says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. So when you confess your sins to God, he forgives you, and he gives you compassion. So it says, all the country of Judea was going out to him. See, he wasn't in a city. He wasn't uh, advertised or anything like that. He was out in the wilderness. And all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So they were coming to confess their sins and to... And to, you know, basically be realigned with the Mosaic Covenant, which is how they were to be blessed under the law. 
And then it talks about John's clothing. John was clothed in verse 6 with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist. His diet was locusts and wild honey. That doesn't sound good to me, but... So John was roughly dressed. He was a lifetime Nazarite. Everybody know what the Nazarite vow was? The Nazarite... Yes, no drinking of wine, no no eating of any of the product of the grape, from seed to skin. You couldn't eat any anything related to the grape. You did not cut your hair, as long as you're under the Nazarite vow. John was under his, the Nazarite vow his whole life, so he never cut his hair. We're assuming. It's not told us that in the text. But Luke 1.15 says of John, He will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. So the Holy Spirit came into John or on John, filled with the Holy Spirit while he was, before he was born, which is amazing. <laughs> but we, you know, this the scripture never says he was a Nazarite, but this is part of the Nazarite vow, not taking any wine. And so that's why we assume that he was a Nazarite. And during this time, there was kind of a messianic fervor. You know, Jesus later said the time has come. And you want to know what time had come? Well, we just learned about the prophecy of Daniel. Right, the 70 weeks prophecy. This was the time when 69 weeks were up. And we know, we learned that 69 weeks the Messiah would appear. That 69 weeks from of Daniel's prophecy, the Messiah would appear in Israel. That was his prophecy. And so there's kind of a messianic fervor in first century Israel for those who knew that prophecy. They were looking for him. And he was coming. So, verse 7, And he, John, was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. He says, I baptize you with water, that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John understood his role his role was to, like our role, is to glorify God, and specifically the Messiah. He was to introduce the Messiah to Israel. And it's interesting to know, he didn't know who the Messiah was when he was started preaching. And he, uh, it was revealed to him too <laughs> when Jesus showed up. <laughs> You know, he knew that he was supposed to do this, you know, and that's how that's how we're to live. We we don't see the Lord doesn't tell us everything. He gives us enough to go on, you know. That's why we need to trust in his word and what it says. Sometimes his word does not make sense to us. Sometimes his word makes us think, well, that's harsh, or that's not, you know, I don't know if I want to do that. But if we follow his word, we will be, pleasantly surprised over and over again. So then in verse 8, yeah, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So 
When you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, that is what is spoken of in the New Covenant, right? The New Covenant was prophesied to Israel and Judah. It was prophesied by Ezekiel. Ezekiel prophesied it. It was first prophesied by Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 and 31 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So when the Lord puts his law within you, that's like your new nature. Your new nature that happens when you believe. In the church age, the Holy Spirit comes in in the moment of belief in the Messiah of Israel, and you receive a new nature which desires to do God's law. And you also receive the Holy Spirit, which gives you the power to do God's law, if you submit to it. And that is what he's talking about here. The Messiah will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What he's talking about here will it has not yet happened because this is talking about the new covenant to Israel and Judah where every one of them will believe every single one that has not yet happened that will happen at the end of the tribulation period but now in the church age individuals have the option of being brought into this new covenant and you get brought in when you believe in Jesus you're brought in and you're placed in his church. The next section is Jesus is baptized and tempted. And that's verses 9 through 13. I'll read that part. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. So verse 9, Jesus came from Galilee, Galilee which is in the north. John was in the south near Jerusalem. He was at the Jordan River as it was emptying into the Dead Sea. So Jesus went on a trip south. And I have something from the quarterly here. And the reason he came was to be baptized. So this is what the quarterly says. Others came to John to confess their sins. Jesus came because he loves to associate with those who hunger for righteousness. This act was typical of his entire life. The love that put him in line with the baptismal candidates 
is the same love that led him to the cross. So in verse 10, it says, immediately coming up out of the water. So this immediately is the translation of the Greek word euthus, which means immediately, <laughs> or it means, you know, in time or next. John uses this word 42 times. Yeah, as we read through this, you'll see that this word is all over the place. Immediately, immediately, immediately. Everything's immediate with John. There's no waiting. He's like in the internet age, <laughs> you know, immediately. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and then when he talks about the heavens opening, says immediately coming up out of the water he saw the heavens opening that word is an interesting word in the greek it's called schizomenos which means tearing open schizomenos tearing open so it, john is abrupt and violent almost in his language you know and yeah i mean mark did i say john sorry i meant mark yeah mark is is uh, very abrupt, and he uses very dramatic language. So the the sky tore open. I wondered what that looked like. Yeah, yeah, and then you and then you saw a dove coming down. Can you imagine that? What it must have been to be in line after Jesus. <laughs> You're like, whoa, yeah, that's interesting. So um, so all of the uh, persons of the Trinity are involved here. And by the way, did you know that all the persons of the Trinity live in you? It's not, it's not just the Holy Spirit. Because there are verses, and I can't remember where they're all located, but they're that the Father and the Son come to live with you when you believe in Jesus, both Father and Son come to live with you, and the Holy Spirit indwells you. That is supernatural. So it's not the Holy Spirit empowers us, but all of the members of the Trinity are involved in our indwelling, which is very cool. So verse 11, a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. So that's the Father's contribution here. The Father verifies that this is the king of God's own choosing. That puts an obligation on Israel. Okay? Because this is in public. There was a lot of people there when this voice came out of heaven and said, You are my son, and you I am well pleased. How more royal can you get than that? And... Uh, so that put them under obligation to make him their king. So if someone came up to you who maybe wasn't a believer, or maybe they're a Jehovah's Witness, something like that, and asked you to explain the Trinity to them, how would you go about that, explaining the Trinity? No, that's our relationship between us as believers and Jesus. Yeah, in the Trinity, there are relationships, but it's one God, so immediately your mind is blown. Immediately it blows your mind when you say that there is one God, there are three persons, 
as God, but God is one. So, you know, it's a difficult thing to explain. Uh, I would point people to the Bible, <laughs> because the Bible claims in Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, very clearly. God is, God is one. Yes, and the Spirit is in both. Yes, and the Holy Spirit is in both. Yeah, so I would say, you know, God is one. And uh, the personages of the Trinity have all of the essence of, the God, of Godhood. But they have distinct personalities. So the Holy Spirit is not the Father. He is not the Son. He is God. The Father is not the Son. He is not the Holy Spirit. He is God. The Son is not the Father. He is not the Holy Spirit, but he is God. That's the only way I know how to describe it. Um, and it, it still doesn't make sense in your human mind that God is one and yet expresses himself in three personages. And there is a hierarchy in the Godhood, in the Godhead. The Father... The, the Son is submissive to the Father. Holy Spirit is submissive to the Father and the Son. And so, and he has created his creation in that way too, with hierarchies, you know. So it's, to be in a hierarchy is not a bad thing. You know, people rebel against that because they want to be above somebody else, you know. Um, but God made the, certain hierarchies. You know, the family, there's a hierarchy in the family. There's a hierarchy in governments between leaders of governments and their citizens. There's a hierarchy in the workplace between the boss and the workers. You know, There's hierarchies all over the place, and that's okay because the Trinity is also a hierarchy. And so we should not uh, rebel against hierarchies because that's the way creation is, because that's the way God is. So... Where am I at now? <laughs> yeah, the Trinity. The Trinity is an interesting subject, and uh, you know, people have tried to deny it down through the centuries. But if you look in the Bible, it's clearly there. So then, verse twelve, immediately again, Euthus, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and this is the Greek ekbalo, which means to cast out. So again, Mark is using violent language. The Spirit kicked Jesus out of the Jordan into the wilderness. He forced him. Of course, Jesus was willing to go. So again, it's very abrupt language. Then verse 13, And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Mark is the only gospel writer who lets us know that Jesus was with wild beasts. Nobody else tells us that. Of course, there was a whole conversation between Jesus and Satan here, right, which Mark leaves out. So Jesus was led into temptation, wasn't he? Right here. He was led into temptation by none other than God himself, by the Holy Spirit. Now, what are we supposed to do concerning temptation? 
Are we to be led into temptation? Do we pray to be led into temptation? Yeah, in the Lord's Prayer, we're told specifically to pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver, you know, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So our prayer is to be that this does not happen to us. What God specifically put Jesus into, we're to pray that we be spared from this. Okay, so why did God do this? to the second member of the Trinity. Why did the third member of the Trinity do it to the second member? Yeah, it's because Jesus is the Son of Man, right? Jesus is the perfect man. And just like Jesus identified with sinners by being baptized, he didn't need to be baptized for the repentance of sins. He had no sin, okay? He did it to identify with sinners, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So when the the Holy Spirit impelled Jesus into the wilderness, which is kind of, you know, wilderness is kind of a hangout for the demons. In Scripture, you know, it talks about the wilderness and or unclean birds are, and jackals, and, you know, unsavory things. Um, He was showing that he is qualified to be the Son of Man because he can take it, (laughs) what we go through, but without sin. So he's going to be the perfect sacrifice for us, and this is part of his preparation for that. His preparation to be the perfect sacrifice as he encounters the things that we encountered, except to a bigger scale. I mean, think of the temptations that he Satan gave him. In the other Gospels, there are the uh, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, to their maximum in each one. Satan didn't hold anything back as far as temptation. And Jesus used the word of God to defeat Satan. He used the word of God. That is how he defeats Satan. So, yeah. So, God did just the opposite to Jesus, what we are to pray for. We are to pray not to be led into temptation because we are weak. And we are prone to sin. That's our nature, you know, in our old man. And so... We're to pray to avoid temptation, to not get ourselves... That's why we don't want to put ourselves in places where we know we'll be tempted. We want to avoid those places because we'll fall, you know. Now, section C, Jesus begins his ministry. That's verses 14 through 20. Anybody want to read that part? Okay, so... In this section, Mark now leaves out one year of Jesus' ministry. We learned two years ago we went through the Gospel of John. can't believe it's that long, but that's when we first started broadcasting these lessons. And uh, John describes his Judean ministry, which started in the beginning, you know, with the wedding in Cana and things like that. Mark leaves all that stuff out. Again, he's being abbreviated. <laughs> and this is back in Galilee. So, um, 
And then we note that now John, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. And, and we talked about what the gospel of God was at this time. Well, he says, and 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, change your mind. Believe that I am the Messiah of Israel and enthrone me as your king. So yeah, once again, the the gospel is two things in the gospels. Early on, it is the gospel of the kingdom. That the kingdom could start. Remember, the kingdom is... When the kingdom comes onto planet Earth, it will be filled with righteousness. It will be filled with justice. There will be universal prosperity. There will be agricultural abundance. Um, there will be very long lifespans. All of the animals will not eat meat anymore. The animals will not eat meat. All of them will be herbivores and things like that. They will, the animals will not be dangerous to people. Um, when you pray, your prayer will be answered immediately in the kingdom. Um, it will be supernatural. Okay? That is the gospel he was preaching. Now, is that good news that this is coming? That is fantastic news. Yes, that is fantastic news. And all Israel had to do was to accept, yes, this is the Messiah, and enthrone him as king to do it. But they didn't. So after that, then began to be preached the gospel of individual salvation. Okay. So Israel as a nation did not accept their Messiah. But if a person... Jew or Gentile, accepts the Messiah of Israel. They believe in Jesus. They personally will be saved and given eternal life. That is the gospel that the church preaches. Okay? The gospel of individual personal salvation. We are still waiting for the kingdom to come, but we have to go through the tribulation to get it. So... This is another quote from the quarterly. It's a question. When, you know, every now and then the quarterly will ask you a question. This question is, have I been obeying Jesus as one who believes in his authority? See, that's a separate issue from do I believe in him for salvation? You know, when an unbeliever hears the gospel, you have to believe in Jesus, you will be saved eternally. You will be given eternal life. Um, and you believe that, then you have eternal life. Now, is there? there's nothing that you need to do in that message except trust in Jesus, okay? This is talking about discipleship. Have I been obeying Jesus as one who believes in his authority? So as we continue to look at the Bible after our salvation, there are things that come up that are at odds with how we're living. The question is, do you believe that? You know, for example, one is, Paul says, to the thief. So a thief comes to faith in Christ. And Paul says, well, don't steal anymore. Instead, work. Not only to 
supply your own needs, but so that you may have something to give to others. So now, do you believe that as a saved thief? You have a new nature now. You have the Holy Spirit now. If you believe the authority of God's word, then you'll go ahead and do that. You'll start to work, and you'll start to give some of your earnings to others. That is discipleship. It's a separate issue from salvation, from justification. But that is what we want to begin to do because that causes us to grow in maturity. It causes us to become more like Jesus as we go on, which is our goal. It's God's goal, and so it's our goal too. So in verse 15, it says, The time is fulfilled. So we talked about this a little bit before. What time is fulfilled? 483 years have been fulfilled from March 5th, 444 B.C., when Artaxerxes of Persia sent Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem. Daniel said there would be 69 weeks of years, so that's 483 years, until Messiah would come. And then he would be cut off. He also prophesied that. So that time is fulfilled. That's what Jesus is saying. March 5th, 444 B.C. That is the time of the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem by the king of Persia. That was the second temple. Actually, that was to rebuild the city. Because uh, he sent, the temple had already been rebuilt by uh, Zerubbabel. Uh, he was sending Nehemiah to rebuild the city. So, um, verse 17 through 20 is Jesus' call to discipleship of some of the, what turned out to be the apostles. Verse 17, and Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately, that's that word, euthus, they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately, Euthus, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they went away to follow him. Now, this time, they already knew Jesus. We know that from the Gospel of John. Uh, they met Jesus down in the south, near the Jordan, as the Jordan went into the Dead Sea. So this is very, um, this is a very common way Christians work. The call to discipleship usually will come sometime after salvation. People will be saved. Paul was unusual. He immediately went into discipleship after he was saved. I mean, he got up, he said, okay, let's do it. <laughs> Most people don't do that. Most people, they hear the good news and they're like, yeah, man. He was gung-ho, yeah. Yeah, so you believe in Jesus and you hear this message, it's like, wow, okay. And many times it's when you're a child and children are, Jesus likes children. He likes the faith of children because they believe things, you know, and they're not all skeptical about everything yet. Yeah, so usually, but usually a, the call to discipleship comes sometimes after initial belief. So 
And that's when you go along and things are not working out. You're trying to do things the world's way, which leads you into problems, causes issues. So you're going along and, and you're a saved person and you're realizing, you know, this is not working. And this happened to me very dramatically when I got divorce papers. You know, I'd been a Christian, I'd been a saved person from the age of seven. Now I'm 36. I get divorce papers and somebody prayed for me and I broke down, you know, like I tend to do. And I just thought, okay, <laughs> I'll do it your way. I, I thought that. Yeah, it took a long time. So, you know, I think that is most people's experience with Jesus. They'll, they'll, they'll go along, they'll be saved, but they won't be following until something happens to force you to do it. And uh, I'm so glad that happened. It's, it's listening and following and seeing the Bible, that is what makes you grow. And really, discipleship, there's nothing more fulfilling than discipleship. Nothing. In this life, you know, without discipleship, life is like Ecclesiastes. It's vain. It's empty. It's worthless. It makes no difference. Discipleship infuses meaning into your life. It also gives you joy. So, yeah. It gives you joy, it gives you hope, it gives you purpose, it gives you answered prayers, it gives you many, many things. And the call to discipleship is a call to just what Jesus was, servanthood. Jesus says, Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The call to discipleship is a call to servanthood. So this is from Philippians 2. 3 and 4, it says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. See, this is the opposite of self-esteem. We don't need self-esteem. We already have too much of it. What we need is this. Consider mother, others more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. So it's okay to look out for your personal interests, but not only that but also for the interests of others. That will lead to joy. So Jesus ministers with authority is section D, so I have to speed it up here a little bit. So let me do that. Verse 21, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. 
Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Okay, so they went to Capernaum, which was their headquarters. This is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he began to teach in the synagogues. The teaching was not described by Mark. He was teaching with authority, which means he did not quote other sources. He explained the Bible to him as one who had written it. This amazed people. Then an unclean spirit spoke his name. This was a way to try to control him. If you knew a, a spirit's name, you're supposed to be able to control it. So he, Jesus simply ignores this and casts the thing out. <laughs> so they couldn't control him. Yeah, he did. He told them to shut up. So they were amazed at his teaching and his ability to command demons. He dealed with, and this is, you know, this goes to, this thing with psychology. Um, people seem crazy, and most uh, many of those people, I'm sure, demon-possessed. Uh, demon possession is not to be met with drugs and uh, Thorazine drip, etc. It is to be met with a presentation of the gospel and prayer. If you're demon-possessed, you're unsaved. Okay? If you are, you can be demon-oppressed, as a believer, you cannot be possessed, but you can be affected by demons as a believer. And that is why we need 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable, all scripture, for teaching, for rebuke, sometimes we need to be rebuked, for correction, sometimes we need to be corrected, and for training in righteousness. So the man of God may be adequate for every good work. So every single thing that we need to do, we can be empowered to do by the Scripture. And uh, people who are uh, whacked out need the gospel. They, if they're violent, they may need a drug. What a drug is, is a chemical restraint. A drug is a chemical restraint. It doesn't cure the problem, but it makes you so you're not violent. So anyway, verse 31, the mother-in-law, they went and saw Simon Peter's mother-in-law. She was sick. Jesus took her hand. The fever left her, and what did she do? Did she convalesce for a while? No. She got up and served them. It was time to cook dinner. So... The mother-in-law was healed to serve. This is a good quote from the quarterly. It says, we face the same temptation. Uh, what was the temptation? Let's see. Jesus was calling people to his eternal kingdom, but they were chiefly interested in a comfortable existence within the kingdom of this world. 
We face the same temptation. Often our goal for our lives is an easy life. But Jesus' goal for us is to transform us, uh, making us fit for his kingdom. And usually that transformation involves hardship and suffering, which enables us to grow spiritually. Yeah, Jesus' goal for us is not an easy life. It's to learn how to be a servant when times are tough. So, and it ends with people just bringing all the sick and all the demon-possessed to him, and he heals everybody. But he's not allowing the demons to tell people who he is. He is the true physician. And that's the end of our lesson for today. So, Lord, <laughs> we thank you. Rush across the finish line. That's right. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for this uh, Mark's uh, depiction of your life. It's, it's not a story. It is historical fact. And uh, you did come. God invaded our world and showed us the way. And so we pray that we would follow him and do what he says. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>